Chapter One of The Drums of Jeopardy. Recording by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Drums of Jeopardy by Harold McGrath. Chapter One. A fast train drew into Albany on the New York Central from the west. It was three-thirty of a chill March morning in the first year of peace. A pall of fog lay over the world so heavy that it beaded the face and hands and deposited a fairy diamond dust upon wool. The station lights had the visibility of stars, and, like the stars, were without refulgence. A pale golden aureola, perhaps three feet in diameter, and beyond, nothing. The few passengers who alighted and the train itself had the same nebulosity of drab fish in a dim aquarium. Among the passengers to detrain was a man in a long black coat. The high collar was up. The man wore a derby hat, well down upon his head after the English mode. An English kit-bag, battered and scarred, swung heavily from his hand. He immediately strode for the station wall and stood with his back to it. He was almost invisible. He remained motionless until the other detrained passengers swam past, until the red taillights of the last coach vanished into the deeps. Then he rushed for the exit to the street. Away toward the far end of the platform there appeared a shadowy patch in the fog. It grew and presently took upon itself the shape of a man. For one so short and squat and thick his legs possessed remarkable agility, for he reached the street just as the other man stopped on the side of a taxicab. The fool! As if such a movement had not been anticipated. Sixteen thousand miles, always eastward, on horses, camels, donkeys, trains, and ships, down China to the sea, and over that to San Francisco, thence across this bewildering stretch of cities and plains called the United States, always and ever toward New York. And the fool thought he could escape, thought he was flying, when in truth he was being driven toward a wall in which there would be no breach. Behind and in front the net was closing. Up to this hour he had been extremely clever in avoiding contact. This was his first stupid act, thought the fog would serve as an impenetrable cloak. Meantime the other man reached into the taxicab and awoke the sleeping chauffeur. "'A hotel,' he said. "'Which one?' "'Anyone will do.' "'Yes, sir. Two dollars.' "'When we arrive. No, I'll take the bag inside with me.' Inside the cab the fare chuckled. For those who fished there would be no fish in the net. This fog, like a kindly hand reaching down from heaven. Five minutes later the taxicab drew up in front of a hotel. The unknown stepped out, took a leather purse from his pocket, and carefully counted out in silver two dollars and twenty cents, which he poured into the chauffeur's palm. "'Thank you, sir.' "'You are an American?' "'Sure. I was born in this burg.' "'Like the idea?' "'Huh?' "'The idea of being an American.' "'I should say, yes. This is one grand little gob of mud, believe me. It's going to be dry in a little while, 
and then it will be some grand little old brick. Say, let me give you a tip. The gas in this joint is extra if you blow it out. Grinning, the chauffeur threw on the power and wheeled away into the fog. His late fare followed the vehicle with his gaze until it reached the vanishing point. Then he laughed. An American cockney. He turned and entered the hotel. He marched resolutely up to the desk and roused the sleeping clerk, who swung round the register. The unknown without hesitance inscribed his name, which was John Hawksley. But he hesitated the fraction of a second before adding his place of residence, London. "'A room with a bath, if you please. Second flight. Have the man call me at seven. "'Yes, sir. Here, boy!' Sleepily the bellboy lifted the battered kit-bag and led the way to the elevator. "'Both!' said the night clerk as the elevator door slithered to the latch. "'Both! The old dear!' He returned to his chair, hoping that he would not be disturbed again until he was relieved. "'What do we care, so long as we don't know? What's the stranger but a fleeting shadow? The odysseys that pass us every day, and we none the wiser.' The clerk had not properly floated away into dreams when he was again roused. Resentfully he opened his eyes. A huge fist covered with a fell of black hair, rose and fell. Attached to this fist was an arm, and joined to that were enormous shoulders. The clerk's trailing, sleep-befogged glance paused when it reached the newcomer's face. The jaws and cheeks and upper lip were blue-black, with a beard that required extra-tempered razors once a day, black eyes that burned like opals, and a bullet-shaped head well-cropped, and a pudgy nose broad in the nostrils. Because this second arrival wore his hat well forward, the clerk was not able to discern the pinched forehead of the fanatic. Not wholly unpleasant, not particularly agreeable, the sort of individual one preferred to walk round rather than bump into. The clerk offered the register, and the squat man scratched his name impatiently, grabbed the extended key, and trotted to the elevator. Ah, mused the clerk, we have with us a Mr. Poppy Popo. He stared at the signature close up. Hanged if I can make it out. Looks like some new brand of soft drink we'll be having after July 1st. Greek or Bulgarian. Anyhow, he didn't ask for a both. Looks as if he needed one, too. Here, boy. Yeah. Take a peek at this John Hancock. Gee, that must be the guy who makes that drugstore drink, Boolzac. The clerk swung out, but missed the boy's head by a hair. The boy stood off, grinning. Well, you asked me. All right. If anybody else comes in, tell them we're full up. I'll be a wreck tomorrow without my usual beauty sleep. The clerk dropped into his chair again and elevated his feet to the radiator. Want me to get a pillow for you? No back talk, drowsily. Oh, boy, but I got one on you. What? This Boozak guy didn't have no baggage, and you gave him the key without the little old three per in advance. No grip? Nix. Not a toothbrush in sight. Well, the damage is done. I might as well go to sleep. 
It was not premeditated on the part of the clerk to give the squat man the room adjoining that of Hawksley's. The key had been nearest his hand. But the squat man trembled with excitement when he noted that it was stamped 214. He had taken particular pains to search the register for Hawksley's number before rousing the clerk. He hadn't counted on any such luck as this. His idea had been merely to watch the door of room 212. He had the feline foot, as they say. He moved about lightly and without sound in the dark. Almost at once he approached one of the two doors and put his ear to the panel. Running water. The fool had time to take a bath. A plan flashed into his head. Why not end the affair here and now and reap the glory for himself? What mattered the net if the fish swam into your hand? Wasn't this particularly his affair? It was the end, not the means. A close touch in Hong Kong, but the fool had slipped away. But here, in the next room, assured that he had escaped, it would be easy. The squat man tiptoed to the window. Luck of luck, there was a fire-escape platform. He would let half an hour pass, then he would act. The ape with his British mannerisms. Death to the breed, root and branch. He sat down to wait. On the other side of the wall, the bather finished his ablutions. His body was graceful, vigorous and youthful, tinted with a golden bronze. His nose was hawky, his eyes a Latin brown, alert and roving. Though there was a hint of weariness in them, the pressure of long, racking hours of ceaseless vigilance. His top hair was a glossy black, inclined to curl, but the four days' growth of beard was as blond as a ripe chestnut burr. In spite of this mark of vagabondage, there were elements of beauty in the face. The expanse of the brow and the shape of the head were intellectual. The mouth was pleasure-loving, but the nose and jaw neutralized this. After he had toweled himself, he reached down for a brown leather pouch, which lay on the three-legged bathroom stool. It was patently a tobacco pouch, but there was evidently something inside more precious than Saloniki. He held the pouch on his palm and stared at it as if it contained some gin clamoring to be let out. Presently he broke away from this fascination and rocked his body, eyes closed, like a man suffering unremitting pain. God's curse on them, he whispered, opening his eyes. He raised the pouch swiftly, as though he intended dashing it to the tiled floor, but his arm sank gently. After all, he would be a fool to destroy them. They were future bread and butter. He would soon have their equivalent in money, money that would bring back no terrible recollections. Strange that every so often, despite the horror, he had to take them out and gaze at them. He sat down on the stool, spread a towel across his knees, and opened the pouch. He drew out a roll of cotton wool, which he unrolled across the towel. Flames! Blue flames, red, yellow, violet, and green. Precious stones, many of them with histories that reached back into the dim centuries, histories of murder and loot and envy. The young man had imagination, perhaps too much of it. 
He saw the stones palpitating upon lovely white and brown bosoms. He saw bloody and greedy hands, the red sack of towns. He heard the screams of women and the raucous laughter of drunken men, murder and loot. At the end of the cotton wool lay two emeralds, about the size of half-dollars and a half-inch in thickness, polished and as vividly green as a dragonfly in the sun, fit for the turban of Shariar, spouse of Scheherazade. Rodin would have seized upon the young man's attitude, the limp body, the haggard face, hewn it out of marble and called it conscience. The possessor of the stones held his attitude for three or four minutes. Then he rolled up the cotton wool, jammed it into the pouch, which he hung from his neck by a thong, and sprang to his feet. No more of this brooding. It was sapping his vitality, and he was not yet at his journey's end. He proceeded to the bedroom, emptied the battered kit-bag, and began to dress. He put on heavy tan walking shoes, gray woolen stockings, gray knickerbockers, gray flannel shirt, and a Norfolk jacket, minus the third button. Ah, that button! He fingered the loose threads, which had aforetime snugged the button to the wool. The carelessness of a tailor had saved his life. Had that button held, his bones at this moment would be reposing on the hillside in faraway Hong Kong. Evidently, fate had some definite plans regarding his future, else he would not be in this room alive. But what plans? Why should fate bother about him further? She had strained the orange to the last drop. Why protect the pulp? Perhaps she was only making sport of him, lulling him into the belief that eventually he might win through. One thing, she would never be able to twist his heart again. You cannot fill a cup with water beyond the brim. And God knew that his cup had been full and bitter and red. His hand swept across his eyes as if to brush away the pictures suddenly conjured up. He must keep his thoughts off those things. There was a taint of madness in his blood, and several times he had sensed the brink at his feet. But God had been kind to him in one respect. The blood of his glorious mother predominated. How many were after him, and who? He had not been able to recognize the man that night in Hong Kong. That was the fate of the pursued. One never dared pause to look back, while the pursuers had their man before them always. If only he could have broken through into Greece, England would have been easy. The only door open had been in the east. It seemed incredible that he should be standing in this room, but three hours from his goal. America, the land of the free and the brave. And the irony of it was that he must seek in America the only friends he had in the world. All the Englishmen he had known and loved were dead. He had never made friends with the French, though he loved France. In this country alone he might successfully lose himself and begin life anew. The British were British, and the French were French, but in this magnificent America they possessed the tenacity of the one and the gaiety of the other, these joyous, unconquered, speed-loving Americans. 
he took up the overcoat. Under the light it was no longer black but a very deep green. On both sleeves there were narrow bands of a still deeper green, indicating that gold or silver braid had once befrogged the cuffs. Inside, soft, silky Persian lamb, and he ran his fingers over the fur thoughtfully. The coat was still impregnated with the strong odor of horse. He cast it aside, never to touch it again. From the discarded small coat he extracted a black wallet and opened it. That passport! He wondered if there existed another more cleverly forged. It would not have served an hour west of the Hindenburg Line, but in the East and here in America no one had questioned it. In San Francisco they had scarcely glanced at it, peace having come. Besides this passport, the wallet contained a will, ten bonds, a custom appraiser's receipt, and a sheaf of gold bills. The will, however, was perhaps one of the most astonishing documents conceivable. It left unreservedly to Captain John Hawksley the contents of the wallet. Within three hours of his ultimate destination. He knew all about great cities. An hour after he left the train, if he so willed, he could lose himself for all time. From the bottom of the kit-bag he dug up a blue velour case, which, after a moment's hesitation, he opened. Metals encrusted with precious stones, but on the top was the photograph of a charming girl, blonde as ripe wheat, and arrayed for the tennis court. It was this photograph he wanted. Indifferently he tossed the case upon the center table, and it upset, sending the metals about with a ring and a tinkle. The man in the next room heard this sound, and his eye roved desperately. Some way to peer into yonder room. But there was no transom, and he would not yet dare risk the fire escape. The young man raised the photograph to his lips and kissed it passionately. Then he hid it in the lining of his coat, there being a convenient rent in the inside pocket. "'I must not think,' he murmured. "'I must not.' He became the hunted man again. He turned a chair up-end and placed it under the window. He tipped another in front of the door. On the threshold of the bathroom door he deposited the water-carafe and the glasses. His bed was against the connecting door. No man would be able to enter unannounced. He had no intention of letting himself fall asleep. He would stretch out and rest. So he lit his pipe, banked the two pillows, switched out the light, and lay down. Only the intermittent glow of his pipe-coal could be seen. Near the journey's end, and no more tightrope walking, with death at both ends and death staring up from below. Queer how the human being clung to life. What had he to live for? Nothing. So far as he was concerned, the world had come to an end. Sporting instinct. Probably that was it. Couldn't make up his mind to shuffle off this mortal coil until he had beaten his enemies. English university education had dulled the bite of his natural fatalism. To carry on for the sport of it, not to accept fate, but to fight it. 
By chance, his hand touched his spiky chin. Nevertheless, he would have to enter New York just as he was. He had left his razor in a Pullman washroom hurriedly one morning. He dared not risk a barber's chair, especially these American chairs, that stretched one out in a most helpless manner. Slowly his pipe sank towards his breast. The weary body was overcoming the will. A sound broke the pleasant spell. He sat up, tense. Someone had entered through the window and stumbled over the chair. Hawksley threw on the light. End of chapter 1